Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's podcast is about what else? Russia. The extraordinary march on Moscow by Yevgeny Prigozhin was the biggest internal threat that Vladimir Putin's faced since he came to power in Russia more than 20 years ago. The march was called off after a few hours, and Prigozhin's gone into exile for now. But there's still huge questions hanging over the future of Russia, of Ukraine, and of Putin himself. My guest this week is Edward Lucas, a former correspondent for The Economist in Moscow and the author of several excellent books on Russia and security issues. So, why do we keep being surprised by events in Russia and what happens now? They wanted Russia to lose. They wanted our society to split and drown in a bloody interior stri- internal strife. They robbed their hands. They dreamed of uh, exacting revenge for their own failures on the front line during the so-called counteroffensive. That was Vladimir Putin speaking in the aftermath of Prigozhin's march on Moscow. The Russian leader complained about treachery but he also seemed prepared to cut a deal with Prigozhin and Wagner. Who knows what will happen next, probably not even Putin or Prigozhin themselves. To try and understand all the turmoil, you need some kind of historical perspective and context. That's why I was particularly keen to consult Edward Lucas, a former colleague of mine at both the BBC and The Economist. He has a record of getting Russia right. In 2008, he published a book called The New Cold War, Putin's Russia and the Threat to the West. At the time, many people, me included, thought it was a bit extreme. But a few months later, Russian forces invaded Georgia, setting off a train of events that culminated in the full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year. So I began my conversation with Edward Lucas by asking why we in the West keep being surprised by events in Russia. I think at the root of it is a misunderstanding of what really happened in 1991. We saw the Soviet Union collapse, the Soviet Empire broke up, we saw the end of the Communist Party's monopoly of power, and we saw the end of the planned economy, and something that looked like a free market, multi-party democracy, sort of recognisable from a Western point of view. That was a misapprehension. I think that the imperialist sort of idea, which was at the heart of both, obviously, the Russian Empire, but then also the Soviet Union, the idea that Russia has the right or the duty to dominate or influence countries in its neighbourhood, never really went away. And what we saw through the 1990s was a slow and sometimes rather spasmodic imperialist revanche. Examples of that include the First and Second Chechen Wars, for example. We saw the rebirth of the victory cult, the idea that 1945 gave Russia a kind of mandate to intervene and to have a presence in European affairs. We saw the beginnings of the sort of anti-Westernism and nationalism that we have seen more under Putin. And all that set the stage for when Putin came in, for him to accelerate and intensify that. But I think our problems with Russia predate Putin, and I think they will outlast him. Yeah. And yet, when Putin comes in, there are many people in the West who are eager to hail him as a reformer. Bill Clinton says, you know, this is the man who's going to complete Russia's transition to democracy. Was that pure wishful thinking? 
Or has Putin himself changed over the course of the 20 years he's been in power? I think Putin has changed a bit, and his initial sort of idea was modernization plus stability. And he had this idea that you would get over the chaos and humiliation, as he saw it, of the Yeltsin era, get the oligarchs under control, make the Russian economy stronger, make Russia respected in the world. But we, I think, misunderstood that as being something that was basically good for us. Putin thought it would be good for Russia. And I think that his KGB background was much more significant than some people said. And I think most of all, we were blinded by an enormous dose of greed. We saw that Russia was a very lucrative trade and investment opportunity. There was also, I have to say, a great deal of ignorance about all the countries around about Russia. So nobody was interested in Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, Central Asia, the Baltic states. We were very Russia-focused in our approach. And along with that, ignorance came a bit of arrogance and naivety, but most of all greed, I think. And I experienced this when I was the Moscow bureau chief for The Economist in the late 90s and early noughties, when I was writing highly critical articles about Putin and coming under intense pressure from the bankers, lawyers, and accountants who made up the sort of Western business community, who said, why are you writing all this rubbish? It's terribly bad for business. And they even tried to put pressure on The Economist back in London to get me to cool it. And I feel quite cross about that to this day. Yeah. And then at what point, well, the Western business community really keep clinging on in there, really, until the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Indeed, if you read a very good book that's come out in German called The Moscow Connection, which looks at the German business community's deep ties with Russia, it's really eyebrow-lifting. I hope that it'll come out in English eventually, but it's not just the City of London and the British professional services industries, but also a whole swathe of people in German industry and German finance and German politics who were deeply compromised, I think, by their connections with Russia. It's worth noting, for example, that when Putin started cracking down on the oligarchs and on entirely spurious grounds, seized Yukos, put Hodokovsky in prison, handed the remains of Yukos over to his Kremlin cronies, Bill Browder, who's now my great ally in highlighting the dangers of Kremlin kleptocracy, was trying to explain that this was all okay. And it was only when Bill was actually himself the victim of one of these sort of corporate raids and was banned from entering Russia that he realized the true nature of the beast. Now, that suggests almost an inversion of the Putin narrative, because the Putin narrative is that we, Russia, were not doing anything wrong, and the West was always out to get us. And you begin to see this in his Munich speech in 2007. Do you think, in a sense, in his own mind, he does believe this? I mean, they have a very well-rehearsed listening of woe going back to the Iraq war, Libya, etc. Or is it pure confection, or as often with human beings, a bit of both? I think that there's a combination of things. I think that the West did make serious mistakes in the 90s, and perhaps not mistakes that Putin is directly criticizing us for, but we propped up the Yeltsin Kremlin with a mixture of money and allowing him to rig elections and so on. And we destroyed our credibility in the eyes of many Russians as any kind of moral arbiters by basically breaking what we said were our own rules. And of course, there was Iraq and things like that as well, which went down badly, not only in Russia. But I think the fundamental point is that Russia never really accepted that it should play by the rules of the Western game. They feel these rules were made at a time when Russia was weak and are enforced in a way that they find hypocritical. And I was very struck by a conversation I had many years ago with a, a Russian in the 
late 90s, who said, why are relations so bad? Why can't you treat us properly, as he saw it, with respect? And I said, well, we can, but it will happen once you treat Estonia as a proper country. And he said, but Estonia is not a proper country. And I said, well, that's the problem. We think Estonia is. It may only be a million people, but it's on track to become a member of the EU and NATO. And if you treat Estonia as a kind of fake country and try and push it around, you're always going to have problems with us. And he couldn't really understand that. He said, you know, why would you make such a fuss about these little countries that don't matter? So I think there's a sort of fundamental difference in outlook between the way the Russians see the world and particularly their neighbourhood and the way we see it. So we think these are real countries. They have real hopes, real fears, real historical traumas and a real chance to determine their own economic, political and security orientation. And Russia basically doesn't. Russia treats its neighbours a bit like old-fashioned English people my grandparents' generation thought about Ireland. And my grandparents, who I was very fond of, would always sort of curl their lips when Ireland was mentioned, say, oh, yes, the free state, because they thought it was basically absurd that Ireland should be independent. And that, thankfully, is gone in British political discourse, but it's still absolutely there in Russia when it applies to Russia's neighbours, notably with Ukraine, which, of course, Putin doesn't think is a proper country. Absolutely. I was going to come up to that because it doesn't just extend to the Baltic states, which, as you say, objectively, they've got small populations, but to Ukraine, which is a massive territory, country of, of many millions of people. But it becomes much more evident when Putin writes his famous historical essay over the summer of, I think, 2021. Again, that slightly raises the question was, I mean, the one theory is that, you know, he had too much time to think and read history books over the COVID period. Or is that silly? And he was actually building up to this for decades. I think that the reason why Putin got obsessed with Ukraine was Ukraine started behaving like a proper country. For most of the 90s, Russia could pretty much do what it wanted in Ukraine. They were running riot through the energy system. There was no real sense of Ukraine making the most of its statehood. It was stuck in a kind of poverty, bad government, weak institutions, and it wasn't really a problem for Russia. They were perhaps a bit more bothered about places like the Baltic states, which were making a real success of their independence. But also Russia didn't have much spare capacity. Russia was pretty busy with itself, with Chechnya and so on. But I think what really triggered Putin was the belief that Ukraine was becoming a serious pole of attraction, a large, orthodox, Slavic country, post-Soviet, which is on the way to having the rule of law, contested elections, free media, and what we call Euro-Atlantic integration, close relations with the EU and NATO, maybe eventually membership. And that's a very profound threat for Putin. And I think that really got him going. And he, long ago, back in 2008, when Ukraine was given this sort of empty promise of NATO membership eventually, but no date, he said, Ukraine's not a country, it's just a territory. And if you pursue this, it will be torn apart. So no one can say we weren't warned, we just didn't listen. And of course, one of the many extraordinary things that happened with this latest episode, the Prigozhin march on Moscow, was that it was preceded by Prigozhin saying, actually, you know, Ukraine was not a threat to Russia, NATO was not a threat to Russia. And with that, he really has taken on the central argument that Putin made for the war. Absolutely. And I think that Putin's made a mistake, and one of his many mistakes, has been trying to make out that Ukraine is run by neo-Nazis and that it's the denazification of Ukraine is a sort of great noble moral mission and the continuation of the victory of 1945, which, as we mentioned earlier, plays a very central role in Russian historiography. The difficulty of establishing this as fact, given that Ukraine is the only country outside 
Israel to have had both a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister serving at the same time. Russians may go along with this as a sort of propaganda trope because it's dangerous and difficult to disagree with it, but it doesn't really carry proper credibility. And I think Prigozhin's willingness to tackle it absolutely head-on shows a good sense for the weakest point in Putin's argument. I think if Putin had just said the United States wouldn't want Mexico or Canada to be in alliance with China, and that's why we don't want Ukraine to be in alliance with America, that would be a sort of clear realpolitik argument which would have some credibility. We might disagree with it, but it would kind of make sense, whereas the denazification argument is just bonkers. Yeah. So where do you think we stand now? I mean, we've started from the idea that the West keeps getting Russia wrong. As I said, you've got a better record than most. But I'm already beginning to think if the snap stuff I wrote over the weekend was wrong, because I said, wow, you know, this looks absolutely terrible for Putin, that the Putin system is crumbling, was I think the headline of my piece earlier this week. But now it looks like some kind of rickety deal has been put in place between Putin and Prigozhin could change again, of course, in the next few days. So any judgment is provisional. But how much trouble do you think Putin's in? I think he's in a lot of trouble, and it didn't start this last weekend. I think that the decision to launch the war was a huge error. The way it was conducted was an error. It was improving a bit once he handed over to the generals, who've now been doing a better job of defending against the Ukrainian counteroffensive. But I think that the real difficulty for Putin is that in an authoritarian regime of this kind, you can't show weakness. Your power rests on your reputation for competence, decisiveness, effectiveness, kind of wisdom, omniscience, call it what you will. And that's tremendously powerful so long as everybody believes in it. But it's a bit of an emperor's new clothes thing. The perception creates the reality. And once people start thinking the boss has lost it, you know, he's made a series of bad mistakes and he handled this latest crisis quite badly. The fact they've managed to stitch up some sort of deal with Prigozhin, I think is a sign of weakness, not of strength. If the Putin regime was firing on all cylinders, first of all, Prigozhin would never have launched the coup because he would have been forestalled. And if he had done it, he would have been treated like the Chechens were and he would be dead or in jail. So I think that the fact they're negotiating with this man who's basically I mean, a gangster warlord and that he's able to negotiate from a position apparently of some strength despite his coup or his march on Moscow having failed is a sign of weakness. And once the perception of weakness spreads, everyone starts thinking, if the boss is on his way out, what does that mean for me? How do I align myself with whom I'd be coming in next? How do I make sure I hang on to my stuff and maybe get some of somebody else's stuff? And I always say that the best guide to Russian politics is not reading academic tomes. It's watching The Sopranos. And you have to think of this as feuding mafia clans. And the top guy, the capo di tutti capi, is just shown some serious errors of judgment and weakness. And everyone is reacting accordingly. So it's like when Tony Soprano has come out of hospital and looking a bit weak and everyone's beginning to wonder. But the difficulty, of course, is that although people can see Putin is weak, the moment that he goes, everyone is scared of what happens next because everything's thrown up in the air. Yes, so people see this instability is coming. They don't necessarily want it, but they think if it is coming, I want to be in a good position. And that sort of creates a vicious circle. I mean, I've said I think Putin's days are numbered and it's months to the next presidential election in March next year. And I seriously doubt that he's going to be a credible contender for another six-year term in March. And once you assume he's not going to be successful in March, then it starts how many months until March, how many weeks. And I think that it'll take us all by surprise. And it's a bit like a boiler that's going to blow. You don't know where 
the boiler is going to blow, but you can say the physics of this, this cannot last. There's too much pressure. And we've just popped a rivet, to follow the analogy a bit further, with Prigozhin. You may be able to patch that up a bit, but the system has become, I think, fundamentally unstable. But isn't one of the characteristics of these authoritarian systems, another characteristic, is that they eliminate all potential sources of opposition, all centres of power, alternative centres of power. Now, Prigozhin was one that they allowed to grow up and they're now trying to diffuse. But even if Putin is fatally wounded, clearly weak, can we see where else in the system something's going to be able to rise up to be an alternative leader of Russia? Well, you're right that Putin has never allowed anyone to be a sort of proper heir apparent. And when he did vacate the presidency briefly, he brought in someone who was widely regarded as an absurd lightweight, Dmitry Medvedev, to keep the chair warm for four years. But there are centers apart. You know, you have large lumps of money in oil, gas, other natural resources. You have big bureaucratic empires who don't get on. GRU military intelligence doesn't like the FSB. The different bits of the military don't always get on very well, and there are some regional tensions as well. And I think when Putin's system is working, it's a bit like the Soviet system, where the Politburo and the Central Committee have all the part in the middle, and no one's allowed to have what used to be called horizontal party relations. You don't make any deals outside this sort of hub-and-spoke model. Once Putin's authority weakens, then the hub isn't working anymore, and the different centers of power, wealth, influence start thinking about doing deals with each other. And that's the point at which then Putin doesn't have the ability to stop things anymore. The last issue, um, Ukraine. As you said, their counteroffensive has met with slightly more organized Russian army. Is this a big opportunity for them? Absolutely. I think the biggest winner from this is Ukraine. If one was a conspiracy theorist, one might wonder whether they managed to trick Prigozhin into making this very rash move. But the result has been bad for Wagner, bad for Prigozhin's own credibility. His own people are quite cross with him. It's also made Putin look weak, and it's been a distraction. And if your enemies are fighting each other, then it makes them less able to resist you. I do think that the Ukrainian counteroffensive has serious problems. They don't have the aircraft, and they don't really have the size of forces that ideally you would want to breach these what appear to be very strong defensive lines. But on the other hand, Russia's got serious weaknesses as well. Logistics is one, and they've landed some very serious blows on Russian logistics hubs. And modern armies have enormous appetite, not just for ammunition, but also spare parts, those sort of filters and seals and all the bits that keep weapons going. So that's been good. They've struck the very fragile logistics links with Crimea, and the Kerch Bridge now looks particularly vulnerable. Morale is weak on the Russian side as well, and they're adopting the sort of Second World War tactics of having sort of special battalions of enforcers at the back to shoot soldiers who try and run away. That works up to a point. But certainly the Ukrainian hope is that the combination of bad logistics, bad leadership, and bad morale... And chaos at home. ...will be compounded by political chaos in the Kremlin. And then you have setbacks at the front and bad decision-making at the top, reinforcing each other. And that's their theory of victory. I don't think that it's overwhelmingly likely, but I think that the events of the last few days have certainly made it considerably more probable. That was Edward Lucas, author and senior advisor at the Centre for European Policy Analysis, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. Please join me again next week. <laughs>